the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. What Adam lost for us, that perfect relationship with God, sin entered the human race. Jesus regained for us by dying on the cross. The Bible makes it clear, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Can I hear amen to that? So that's the good news. Now, immediately after God pronounces his judgment, his consequences upon Adam and Eve and the serpent too, then he banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, along with the book of Revelation, bring together the gospel perfectly. Today, Pastor Gary will be explaining how in Genesis, we read how in Adam, sin entered the world and a curse was put on the land. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus, the second Adam, by his one act of righteousness, redeemed the whole world and will create a new heaven and new earth. Jesus won't just redeem man, but he will bring redemption to the land that was cursed as well. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part one of today's message entitled, Rejecting Cain. Genesis 3, we're going to close out our study today, and we're actually going to move into chapter 4 as well, as we look at the closing verses of chapter 3 and the first few verses of chapter 4 together. We've spent a few weeks on chapter 3 on purpose. It's an important chapter dealing with a very important doctrine, the fall of man. When man fell from his perfect relationship with God because he disobeyed God, sinned against God, and thus when man sinned, sin entered the human race because when Adam sinned, his seed, if you will, contained that sin nature then that was passed down for all succeeding generations, including us. We're born into sin. The Bible makes it clear, Romans 5, 12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in that way death came to all men because all sinned. So Romans 5, 12 tells us we've all sinned because Adam sinned, Eve sinned, and thus we inherit the sin nature. Good news is, we talked about it last week, in Genesis 3, verse 15, it is the first messianic prophetic passage of the Bible, referring to Jesus, God does, as the seed of the woman who will come to crush Satan's head. 
In other words, looking forward, there would be a day in God's perfect timing when he would send his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. He would die, he would be buried, he would raise again in three days. And that triumphal act of God by the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus would be what in effect crushes Satan's head. That the dominion of Satan is therefore disarmed and thus we don't have to belong to his dominion anymore because of what Jesus has done for us. We can be saved and forgiven and we can be delivered into the kingdom of the Son that God loves. So that's the good news and God gives us a preview of it here in Genesis 3.15. And thus, what Adam lost for us in the garden, Jesus regained for us on the cross. And that's the full circle message of the gospel. What Adam lost for us, that perfect relationship with God, sin entered the human race. Jesus regained for us by dying on the cross. The Bible makes it clear, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Can I hear amen to that? So that's the good news. Now, immediately after God pronounces his judgment, his consequences upon Adam and Eve and the serpent too, then he banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He sends them out. And that's where we left off last week in chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Verse 21. And we'll read down through chapter 4, verse 7. So chapter 3, 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That's interesting, isn't it? By the way, another reference to the Trinity. God says man has become like one of us. It's one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Another reference there, inference to the Trinity. And he says that man will now be like us in the sense that he knows good and evil. Well, God knew good because he is good. That's his character. That's his nature. And he knew evil observationally because he saw what was happening before him. Man knew good because he knew God. And he knew evil experientially. He experienced it. And then God goes on to say he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the, to the tree of life. Chapter 4, Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Interesting, Cain's name in Hebrew translates acquired or possessed, acquired, possessed, possessed like acquired, not possessed like, you know, that kind of possessed. I know some of you think, I'm kind of raising Cain too at home, not that. <laughs> but listen, she raised, she, she said after she gives birth to Cain, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And so it's likely that here she names him Cain, meaning acquired or possessed. I've now had a man. It's probably that she thinks Cain is the promised seed referred to back in chapter 315. Now, she's wrong, but she thinks when she has this child, birth for the first time, human birth, this must be what God promised. He won't be the promised child. But anyway, we see also that she thinks that when she names Abel. Verse 2, later she gave birth to his brother, Abel, Chabel in the Hebrew, and it means vanity or waste. Anybody here named Abel? Because I would hate for you to go around being called waste, but that's what your name means. I think it's a name that has probably faded from 
um, the pages now. I don't think that's in anybody's baby book, right? When you look at the list of names, let's name our child Abel. It means waste. How sad and tragic is that? But again, it probably speaks to the fact that Eve thought, well, Cain is the promised son. I've acquired him. He's the seed of the promise. Abel, eh. <laughs> Read on. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. Two noble professions. One's a shepherd, one's a farmer. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Notice that he's going to distinguish between the man and what the man brought. He looks with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain, the man, and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. I felt led to actually talk about Cain and Abel in two parts, and next week will be part two. And the reason that I felt led that way is, again, as I emphasized reading through the text, because God addresses them in two different ways. Over Abel, he has favor upon Abel as a man and his offering. But upon Cain, he looks with disfavor upon him as a person and his offering. So there's two issues going on here. There's something about them individually in terms of character. We're going to talk about that next week. But for today, we're going to look at the issue of the offerings that they brought. Why is it that one offering was acceptable to God and one offering God rejected? It's an age-old question, but we're going to break it down. We're going to see the answer to it. And in order to understand and appreciate the events of chapter 4, we have to look at the way chapter 3 ends. That's why, I, that's why I linked it together as I read through the text, because the way that we see chapter 3 ending has everything to do with the right interpretation of chapter 4. So let's get an understanding of what's happening here. Adam and Eve have sinned, they've disobeyed God, and as a result, they've been kicked out of paradise. In fact, there in chapter 3, verse 23, the word is banished. God banishes them from the Garden of Eden. It's a strong word in the Hebrew. Because it indicates to us that God forcefully removed them. They did not want to go. And do you blame them? I mean, think about it for a moment. If you were enjoying just kind of the life of luxury, you were living on some tropical paradise, you know, and there you were sitting around all day just, you know, drinking Vita Coco and eating mangoes, and you didn't have a care in the world, and then all of a sudden you are thrust from that into some like barren wilderness, like Cleveland or something. And, uh, and you're going from this tropical oasis to something like Cleveland. I mean, it would be, you wouldn't want to go either. So, so we don't blame them, right? They didn't want to go. And God says, you have to go. And he pushes them out. He banishes them. He forcefully removes them. Now, before they go, God is going to teach them, it's inferred here at the end of chapter 3, he's going to teach them two very important things. Here's the first thing he's going to teach them. He's going to teach them substitutionary sacrifice. Substitutionary sacrifice. What does that mean, and how is it that God teaches them? Well, notice with me here that verse 21 of chapter 3, we're going to park for a while at the end of chapter 3. In verse 21, it says, God clothed them with garments of skin. Now, remember, after they felt ashamed because of their nakedness, they put on fig leaves. 
if that were enough, then they would have just left with that. But God is going to specifically clothe them, and it's for a reason. But before I get into the reason, please notice with me, God clothed them before they go out into public, right? Okay? Public nudity is kind of not what God designed, all right? So people who are into all the you know, nudist colonies, nudist things, you know, club med beaches, kind of not what God ordered, right? There is Ever since the fall, man is supposed to be covered up when you go out. If you're happily married and you want to be naked around the house and nobody can see any of the blinds, please pull the blinds. But, I mean, that's fine. But going out in public, you know, and I suppose Adam had a belt, too. He wasn't sagging around. The, anyway, <laughs> don't get me going. But I remember this story, a cute story that Chuck Swindoll told one time. I heard him on the radio talking about how this couple in his, in his church, uh, they, this couple that had a five-year-old boy, and they decided to make a cross-country drive. And they would just stop randomly at different campsites on the way across country. And uh, they pulled into this one campsite. They'd never been there before. They just you know, saw a sign. They pulled into it. It was a nudist colony. It was a campsite just for nudists. And now they had their five-year-old boy in the back seat. And this is how they realized what it was about. As they're driving the driveway into this campsite, there's this man riding a bicycle naked. Okay? I hope it wasn't a rental. But anyhow. So as they pull in and they see this naked dude riding a bicycle, they're like, oh, no, we've got to get out of here. Got the five-year-old son in the back seat. Hope, hope little Johnny didn't see anything. And they're pulling the car around and trying to hightail it out of there. And from the back seat, you know, five-year-olds pick up everything. And from the back seat, he goes, Mom, Dad, did you see that man back there riding a bike? And they're like, oh, yeah, we, we did. And he said, did you realize that he wasn't wearing something? Uh, yeah, we kind of saw it too. And he said this. This is so innocent. He goes, well, if he doesn't have to wear a helmet, I don't want to wear one. <laughs> is that the only thing he saw? All right. Notice here, why is it a substitutionary sacrifice inferred in the text? Because God clothes them with the garment of skin from animals. This is the first shedding of blood. This is the first inference to the slaying of animals. God is teaching them something here. They are not to just go out clothed with fig leaves. They are to go out clothed with the skin of animals because in so doing, God is teaching them something about blood atonement. He's teaching them something about the sacrifice of an animal. It would later be codified in the Mosaic law that there would be the necessity for a sacrifice, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. God would put it into place many thousands of years, about 4,500 years later, he would codify it into Mosaic law. We read about it in Leviticus 17.11. God says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And he's teaching Adam and Eve, pre-law, pre-the cross, The idea, the concept that you now will be approaching me through a substitutionary sacrifice. There needs to be the shedding of blood for you to commune with me. So I'm going to clothe you in garments of skin. I'm going to clothe you, if you will, in a temporary form of righteousness that these skins would be a symbolism and a reminder to you that blood atonement is necessary now for you to approach me. The New Testament basically says the same thing. Listen, Hebrews 
in chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is the very reason why Jesus died on the cross. Look, you know the difference between Old Testament and New Testament in terms of blood covenant, blood sacrifice? It's the same except that, this is a huge exception, Jesus became the final, perfect, ultimate, and only lasting eternal sacrifice that through his shed blood on the cross, we might have forgiveness of sins. Blood is still required. But now the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. The righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The way you get to God is still through blood sacrifice. It's just that now the sacrifice has been completed in Christ because he's the ultimate and perfect sacrifice for the taking away of our sins. But what God was doing for Adam and Eve was pointing to the cross. He was giving them a preview of the Mosaic law, which was a preview of the cross. That the reason I'm covering you in garments of skin is because you need to be made aware that the, now the way you approach me is through substitutionary sacrifice, is this sacrificial offering. Something had to exist before the cross. Think about it. Many of you have asked me this question just in passing or when we have our Q&A Sunday. What happens to the people who were born before the cross? How are they atoned for? The answer is temporarily atoned for by the virtue of the sacrifice of animals. It was the shedding of blood. The, the Bible says that the life is in the blood. One life given for a sinner. And that was God's exchange program to make us positionally righteous before him. There had to be a sacrifice, there had to be a blood sacrifice in order for man to be able to approach God. And he's teaching them this. There's something about blood atonement that is inferred here, inferred in the passage by the way that God clothes them with garments of skin. Now the other thing that he teaches them is the way of worship. The way of worship. God banishes them from the Garden of Eden and he banishes them for their own good. Because here in chapter 3, the last part of verse 22 God said that he, meaning man, must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. One of the reasons why God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden is because he did not want them to eat of the tree of life. Now remember, first couple of chapters of Genesis in our study through, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden that were named. There were many trees, but two that were named. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which if they ate of it, they would die. They did. They sinned against God. The dying process began. The other tree that's named, and the only other tree, is this one, the tree of life. And apparently, there was some eternal property within the fruit of that tree that if Adam and Eve had eaten it in their fallen sinful state, it would have permanently sealed them in that fallen state. And God didn't want that to happen because God implemented a plan of redemption. That's what Genesis 3.15 was all about. And he wanted them to be able to be redeemed and saved. And thus he could not allow them to eat of the tree of life because they would seal their sinful state permanently. Now, there's a beautiful full circle event that happens with the tree of life, by the way. Uh, we don't see it again after this passage. It reappears in Revelation chapter 2. It's, it's used metaphorically in the book of Proverbs, talking about wisdom and righteousness, but it appears literally in Revelation that God takes it eventually, probably just before the flood, removes it from the earth, has kept it in heaven, and we see it again, Revelation 2, the believers, the letter to the church of Ephesus, they will one day eat of the fruit of the tree of life, because in that day, we can be sealed in our permanent glorified state. And in Revelation 22, it says the tree of life appears on each side of the river of life. So we see it again. But for the meantime, 
God says, I can't allow Adam and Eve to come back here. If they eat of it, they're going to be permanently sealed forever in their sinful state. So he banishes them. And when he banishes them, he sets in place, verse 24 tells us, cherubim. Look at verse 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, circle the word cherubim. What exactly are cherubim? This is the first reference we have in the Bible to cherubim, but there will be many more references. Cherubim is plural, and the singular term is cherub. Now, in order for you to understand this scene in your mind's eye, I'm going to have to ask you to remove something about cherubs in your head. Because the way we think of cherubs, I want you to get this out of your head. Those little chubby, naked preschool boys with curly blonde hair and wings playing a harp that adorn our Christmas cards, get that out of your head. That is somebody's weird idea of what a cherub is. Let me tell you what cherub is. Cherubim are majestic. I want you to picture in your mind's eye, majestic, awesome, powerful, virtuous, strong, mighty, angelic creatures. That's what cherubim are. There's at least two because it's in the plural. Maybe there was many more. And they're guarding the east side of the Garden of Eden. Now, cherubim appear 89 times throughout the Bible. There's a reference to cherubim 89 times throughout the Bible. And these beautiful creatures become central because in the future temple that is built, we read in the Bible that the images, the sketches of cherubim are etched into the doors of the temple. The Bible says they are etched on the walls of the interior of the temple. The Bible says that their figure is woven within the curtain of the temple that separates the Holy of Holies from the Holy place. So you see angels all over the place in the Bible, these cherubim creatures, and you also see them, they adorn the top of, Moses is told, fashion the Ark of the Covenant with a lid called the mercy seat, and on the lid are to be two cherubim, each stretched outward head down facing each other, wings expanded. So awesome creatures. Now here's what's interesting in the Bible, and this is why God is teaching them perhaps the way of worship at this location. Nine times in the Old Testament, the Bible says that God sits enthroned between the cherubim. I'll give you a couple of references. 1 Samuel 4, 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Psalm 99, verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. It is the reason why the ancient Jewish rabbis who wrote the Jerusalem Targum, which is basically an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament plus commentary, the ancient Jewish rabbis read here in Genesis 3 about the east side of the Garden of Eden. You know what they would write in the Jerusalem Targum? They would write that this became the appointed place of worship as God would still commune with man, although now from a distance. Now think about it. Put all this together. God is teaching them something about blood atonement. He clothes them in garments of skin. Animals are slain in order for that to happen. He then establishes on the east side of the Garden of Eden, which is very interesting. 2 Chronicles chapter 5 tells us that the priests started their service on the east side of the altar. 
Also in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, it tells us that the priests and Levites would organize on the east side of the temple. Could it be here that God is not only teaching them atonement, substitutionary sacrifice, but he's also making a provisional location, the east side of the garden, where he's enthroned between the cherubim, nine times it says in the Bible. God would meet with them. God would still be able to fellowship with them. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. What is this cornerstone? Or better yet, who is this cornerstone? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is that cornerstone. And it's our desire to honor and glorify Jesus through the teachings that you hear each day on Cornerstone Connection. Cornerstone Connection is the teaching ministry of Pastor Gary Hemrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. You can get a free downloadable copy of today's teaching at our website. Simply log on to cornerstoneconnection.cc. It's our hope that you're attending a local church that teaches God's Word from beginning to end. If you don't currently have a church home and live in the Northern Virginia area, we encourage you to join us in person for worship. For service times, driving directions, and more information, log on to cornerstoneconnection.cc. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Please join us next time as we continue through the book of Genesis. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.